humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 362, and I had a conversation with Dr. Tristan Engels. Dr. Engels is a clinical forensic psychologist. She's an outside practice, but also works within the California prison system to ensure the welfare of inmates and patients. She's been featured on documentaries like The Garden State Killer and Evil Among Us, Ted Bundy, and has extensive experience with psychopaths and violent criminals. Her book, The Power of Truth, The Life of Louis R. Vitullo, and The Legacy of the Rape Kit, is about her grandfather, the creator of the Vitullo Evidence Collection Kit, otherwise known as the Rape Kit, which standardized the collection of evidence in sexual assault cases. Now, we talk about this in this episode, but I want to bring it up again. I think it's so important. You can go to endthebacklog.org in order to help give money to help process the huge, huge backlog of rape kits that there are waiting to be processed to match with DNA. Uh, So it's endthebacklog.org. Super important. There's trigger warnings for sure, because we do talk about pretty intense things. So uh, just make sure that you understand that going in. Trigger warning for certain for uh, conversations about rape and violence. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests in the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. (laughs) Look for my most recent album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, check out my relationships and sex show with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman on YouTube under Are We There Yet? Podcast Show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening and thank you for spreading the word. It's super helpful. Thank you for reviewing the show. Uh, All of it helps. I really appreciate it. Take care. Be well. Be love. Lift each other up. And uh, let's get into this. Here we go. Dr. Tristan Engels, welcome to Hey Human. Hi, thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah, I learned of you through uh, my work with the Green Wall story. Yeah. So, uh, but when you and I were talking about that, the whole time I was thinking to myself, dang, she's the most fascinating human being. I've got to get her on Hey Human. So I'm so <laughs> glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here, but that's quite a compliment. <laughs> I feel pressure not to live up to this. <laughs> no pressure. Let's jump in. Tell me where you're from, where you grew up. Um, I'm from just outside of Chicago, kind of all over. I've lived in the Northwest suburbs for most of my life. I went to high school in Mount Prospect, Illinois, or I lived there and I went to high school there. Um, And I lived in Chicago City for about 10 years before moving to um, California. So yeah, Midwest girl here. What brought you to California? Grad school. Yeah, I came I came to California for grad school. I, I got into a graduate program in Chicago, but they had a campus out here I could transfer to and I wanted to transfer here and do my internships and practicum uh, out here. Uh, and I got some really good experience doing that. So Chicago weather, LA weather. Yeah. Yeah, it was supposed to be temporary. <laughs> I was supposed to be out here for the valuable learning experiences and return home, but that just never happened. <laughs> what did you study in college? Uh, undergrad college, just psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I went to the University of Illinois, Chicago. Graduate school, I studied clinical forensic psychology. I think forensics in general is fascinating. Can you talk about the difference between general forensics and then forensic psychology, what that means? Yeah. So general forensics, I think when people hear forensic, a lot of times they're thinking, oh, are you going to crime scenes? Are you doing investigative work like that? That is what people think of when they hear the term forensic, you know, forensic science, going to doing crime scene investigation, doing DNA analysis, solving crimes. That is not what I do. I'm a clinical forensic psychologist. So my role is doing uh, working with forensic populations in the criminal justice system in the in the role of a psychologist. So I don't solve crimes. I'm not 
trying to find, you know, active serial killers or anything like that. I meet with individuals in the criminal justice system after they've been caught. That's the main, main difference. I'm not in crime scenes. I do see crime scene footage, uh, especially in certain evaluations I've been court ordered to conduct on a defendant. Some of them, they give me the, all of the records, including, you know, body cam footage and crime scene evidence and things like that. But I don't go to the actual scene. I come in way after the fact. So those are the main differences. What brought you into that career? So growing up, I, I, you know, outside of Chicago, uh, my grandfather was a Chicago police sergeant. He went on to become a the chief of the, the crime lab, the chief microanalyst of the Chicago crime lab. He was a forensic science individual. So he has all kinds of education in the, in the field of forensic science and DNA analysis and and all of that. So he ran the crime lab and he worked on some very notorious cases, cases um, like uh, Richard Speck. Uh, if you remember him, but he he killed about eight nurses um, in 1963, I believe it was. I could be wrong there. Um, and he and my grandfather was in Time magazine uh, for that case because it was such a like, you know, uh, unnerving case. It rocked the city entirely. And he was um, the point person in helping to identify uh, Richard Speck. So that he got called out of retirement for working on John Wayne Gacy because that crime scene was extremely complex, as you can imagine. But more importantly, he uh, worked with a, a sexual assault survivor by the name of Martha Goddard to create the rape kit, which we know now as the rape kit, which uh, is used all over the world now and continues to help bring justice to survivors when they're tested. That's a whole other issue, um, but also helps exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. So he was, uh, I was very close to him. He was my inspiration. He was a hero of mine, uh, best buds. We were inseparable growing up. And when he passed away, I had just graduated undergraduate college and I, you know, trying to figure out what to do with my life. <laughs> you know, we all we all are in our beginning early 20s. So he had passed right after that and when he passed, we were um inundated with cards and letters and phone calls and newspaper articles. The mayor was dedicating a day to him. The Chicago Police Department dedicated a day to him. And I read every single card, every single letter and all of them were from survivors or attorneys or anybody who has worked with my grandfather or um, was impacted by him and his um, contribution. And it was so moving. And uh, it really made me think, okay, I need to carry on this, this legacy and do something um, with this. It was just that inspiring. So I thought about forensic science, but I am not, <laughs> it's not, I'm not cut out for that. I'm not cut out for law enforcement. So I thought, what can I do? Um, and I remember my grandfather telling me, I called him Papa. He was Italian. So I remember him telling me that the one thing he couldn't understand was that no matter what he did in his career to help deter offending or reoffending, he would see the same crimes being committed and the same people cycle through the system. And he didn't understand what could be done to stop that. So essentially what he was telling me was he didn't understand recidivism and why it was occurring. And it wasn't something that was highly focused on during his you know, tenure in, the, in law enforcement. And so that led me into the path of uh, forensic psychology. And that's, and that's where I am today. So is that what a bulk of your work is then to try and either stop recidivism or see why it's happening? A lot of it, yeah. I worked for a, a number of years for the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and I, I really enjoyed that work mostly for the efforts to help with recidivism. So when I was working for the department, I really focused on rehabilitation efforts. I focused on uh, gang and drug prevention. I focused on um, drug and alcohol education. I did a lot of uh, interventions there and a lot of education there with, with the um, incarcerated adults that were on my caseload and tried to help them learn and gain tools and build a toolbox. So when they were eventually released, they were that much more successful and they understood 
you know, what led them there. So I started uh, working with that. And then now I, I do therapy with people who are in the, in the community still, but have a history of being incarcerated. So it's about, you know, supporting them while in the community. And I work with the courts and I do um, court ordered evaluations for individuals with mental illness. So if they're being charged with a crime, they'll, they'll call me in to double check. Okay. Are they competent? Were they insane at the time of the offense? Can we do a diversion program for them? Meaning like we send them to a mental health diversion instead of prison, get them treatment. I get to help in that way. And I, and that does also impact recidivism rates in a, a large capacity. So, so, yeah. so you helped to answer your grandfather's pun. Yes, I was. Yes, exactly. The one lingering question that he had, I thought to answer. And I, uh, I'm still seeking to do that. Not every, not every person I encounter is going to be successful, but success in this business is small victories and I'll take them where I get them. And, and it's very inspiring and uh, gratifying when, when it does happen. So what do you see as being one of the contributing, or at least a bulk of the contributing factors to people that do reoffend? And as a second part of that question, do you think that the system is in fact set up to failure for those that are incarcerated? Those are some pretty intense questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so starting with the one, um, I think largely is there's a lot of flaws in our criminal justice system. There's very f- limited resources that underserved populations can have access to. And even those resources that we have you know, created are so um, underfunded or overcrowded, so to speak, where there's wait lists and there's not enough uh, supply for the demand. Um, the biggest factors for recidivism that w- I've seen is lack of basic needs getting met, lack of education, lack of access to um, to care that middle class and upper class individuals will have. If somebody's basic needs can't be met, that's the biggest factor for recidivism. I mean, that's when they start, they resort to stealing and doing what they have to do to survive. Lack of treatment from untreated mental illness or lack of treatment for um, ongoing substance dependence. Like those are some very uh, significant elevations and risks of reoffending. Those are the things that uh, we see quite frequently when it comes to recidivism. Now, the, the justice system, is it set up for success? In some ways, yes. I think there are aspects where it is successful. There are a lot of aspects about the system that work against rehabilitation. Having worked in corrections, one of those things uh, that I really see is that it's all about punishment. So they're already removed from society. They're already serving their time. And while they're in there, they are, they do get access to vocation, education. Um, they do have those things, but those things are also very limited. There's a wait list. And sometimes their term is shorter than the time it takes for them to wait to get into those programs. So they'll be there the entire time without access to any of those programs before they're released without any support <laughs> when they're let go. But again, it's all about punishment. So there's very little reinforcement for pro-social behavior that occurs in an institution. That was something that was really frustrating as uh, somebody who studies this and understands the human behavior. When when an incarcerated individual is trying to do the right thing in prison, trying to self-advocate, trying to get a job, trying to, um, because they do get jobs in prison, um, trying to do things that will that will help them set them up for success. Uh, if they go about it the pro-social way, requesting it, applying, waiting, and they still are getting uh, nowhere, you know, they're not reinforcing those efforts. When they get frustrated, then they get punished. So it's more of like, we need to start reinforcing the pro-social behavior, supporting them when they're going about it the right way, instead of pushing them until they you know, have to have no other choice but to, you know, raise their voice or act out or do whatever it is to get their needs met, um, to be heard, then we end up punishing them. So there's, there's a lot of flaws in the system that's, it needs a whole overhaul, really. (laughs) 
at least in our in our country other countries have it have done it pretty well <laughs> so yeah some of some of the countries Denmark comes to mind really mm-hmm. you know, knows what it's doing Portugal they treat people with um, substance abuse as human beings in need of treatment they don't throw them in prison <laughs> you know they put them they get they get them treatment we don't do that. We throw people in prison and then we don't treat their substance abuse in prison. And and it's not only that, but it's facilitated by, uh, by drugs and alcohol that come into the exactly facilities. Exactly. That's a whole other aspect. The, the green wall aspect, <laughs> all of that, that also needs an overhaul. There needs to be more like oversight. And, and personally, I think that they should have an undercover agent in every department in each institution to monitor for those things um because it's that rampant <laughs> you imagine that job though good lord yeah. yeah it's a tough it would be a tough one um i know that they do they have like special agents that will go undercover at times as custody officers but they need somebody who will go undercover as um just you know an administrative person or a mental health person or, you know, something like that, because the special agents are just promoted officers from within. They've been with the department, they've come up the ranks. So they know a lot of the people they'd investigate anyway. So they need like a whole other agency <laughs> that has, has knows nobody there, <laughs> no allegiances other than, you know, oversight. Um, I could talk about that all day. <laughs> Absolutely. And you will on the other show. <laughs> yeah, and I do. And exactly. <laughs> As someone who, now, how long have you been doing this professionally now? How many years? Uh, 10 years. In your 10 years, what? Over 10 years, I think. I'm sorry? Over 10 years, I think. Yeah. In that time frame, what would you wish you would have known from the very start? and? And compared to what you know now, what would be the one thing that if you could go back in time and say, this thing will help get you through to here, what do you think it would be? Having more realistic expectations about law and ethics and how they collide and having more realistic expectations about our criminal justice system and um, just how much of a difference you can make as one person. (laughs) Uh, yeah Um, that that I wish I knew because you know like I said I had a a a best friend and a hero that was in law enforcement and then I get into law enforcement and I'm like wow there's a lot of people in this field that really have no business being here you know and just and and then some so it was very jarring very like shocking and it changed a lot of my uh my world view you know, so I would say being having more realistic expectations about what that will be like, what the prison industrial complex is, what you're likely going to see, and how much you're likely going to be able to change as one person alone. So I wish I knew that going going in. When you sit down with your clientele and have these conversations about where they've been and where they're <clears throat> potentially going, is it hard to communicate to them? your knowledge in other words are they pretty set in in who they are in their ways or do you see on the whole more of a a willingness to change and to grow I think it's a mixed bag I think for me it it was a lot harder to establish um, some credibility with the clientele because you know to them I'm I'm highly educated I'm a woman I'm white I'm privileged. I, what do I know about the life that they have had to live? I get a lot of initial resistance right away, but they're very good at under, because of the lives that they've lived, where they've come from. Um, They're very good at distinguishing someone who's genuine and someone who's disingenuous. And they respond very well to boundaries, rules, and fairness. So if they see that I'm uniformly setting those boundaries, I'm being fair. I'm, I'm, you know, I, yeah. If I'm, if they see that, they see genuine. They see, okay, this person is somebody who get, who might get it, who's listening to me. I can listen to her, and then they'll start to really engage. But there are some that just, yeah, they're very set in their ways. You're not going to see much of a difference. It's 
ingrained. And most of them are there for life. And even those who are there, there are some that are there for life who really are trying to change, if not for themselves, but to set an example for the younger incarcerated adults that come in, the younger generations. They've they're older, they've been there, they're seasoned, they're the quote OGs. Um they try to set a better example. They try to share their knowledge and give others a fighting chance. So there's it's a mixed bag and it's really interesting to see that experience. Mm-hmm. How did you adjust yourself emotionally, spiritually, maybe even, and to keep grounded through the, the these experiences? I imagine in the beginning, especially, that had to have been in its own way, traumatizing. How did you deal with all of that? I had a lot of uh, friends in the field, whether they're from grad school or from my work, they worked alongside me and we processed together. That's probably been the biggest saving grace uh, is having established um, strong colleague relationships where you can process these things with each other. We all come from different backgrounds, different experiences. Some have been there longer, some of us not as long, Um, but it's that support that really helps you to find ways to frame it, find ways to process it, find ways to not take it home with you. Um, That was crucial in the beginning stages is having those outlets. Ironically, you felt more in danger in your career from people who are supposedly on the same side as you, meaning those who are on the uh, the prison guard slash prison, the correction side versus the inmate side. Is that correct? That's correct. I think that's something that shocks a lot of people. I I've had more threatening situations and my, you know, uncomfortable or harassing situations from people who are supposed to be working, you know, cohesively with me than I had from the population that we're supposed to quote, expect that from when the reality was I was much more respected by the population I was serving than the people I worked amongst. And that meant specifically a majority of the correctional uh, officers and including my chain of command and mental health, <laughs> which consisted of mostly men and um, one of whom used to be a police officer himself. So, yeah, I think that's uh, something that shocks a lot of people when I tell them that it's not what they would expect. Yeah, and there is a definite code of silence within that community as well, where if somebody does something, nobody talks about it because yep. you get you get either more threats or you get moved to some other facility where yep you can deal with it all over again right and they'll and and even if they move you to a different facility they already know about you before you get there it's not as it's a it's a small community <laughs> as large as california is this department uh, is very, quite small. Everybody knows somebody at every institution and it will follow you. And um, yeah, and they will go to great, great, great lengths uh, if you breach that quote, quote, code of silence, as they call it. I've even had officers that I felt, you know, who are, who are one of the good ones, like the good apples out of the bunch. And there, some of them actually came to me to warn me of threats against me by their colleagues. But which I appreciate, but then when it comes to like, okay, we need to do something about this, they won't speak up outside of telling me as a warning. They wouldn't take it where it needed to go either. They took it to me so I could deal with it, but then wouldn't wouldn't corroborate what they had shared with me um, outside of our dialogue because of that fear. It's so interesting to me too that people want to put on blinders about that or think, oh, that can't be, these people are supposed to protect and serve and they're in there and they're supposed to be the good guys and all that. And I often, my response to that is look into your own family, just look in the little unit of your own family. How many things are not talked about or covered up or look the other way within siblings or parents or parent child. Look at that. If it's happening with people that are supposedly 
mm-hmm. you know, ride or die family blood bonded. Imagine what it's like out where there is not that. Exactly. And this is like, we're talking about an, an institution that's run like its own society that is not within civil, civilian life. Like it's, it's completely detached from society and it's extremely closed off. And when they go in there, it's their house. They run it. They, they have the rules and the, the limited oversight to that allows them to get away and be emboldened um, to be that way. I mean, we saw it with the Stanford experiment with, you know, look how that was, I think the only, to my knowledge, I don't know if there's been another one since, but the only um, research study that had to stop because of the inhumane treatment, they had to end the study because people got way too into their roles and way too polarized in this research study that emulated what prison actually is. And if that doesn't tell you <laughs> what goes on in there for real, I don't know what would. Yeah. And for those listening, that experiment that took place took civilians in a in a psychology experiment to see what would happen if you assigned a guard, let's say, to a certain group and then prisoner to another group. Again, these are just regular folks that have volunteered for the study mm-hmm. and how quickly it descended into violence against inmate, quote unquote, or aggression. It was such yeah. a crazy, yeah. so crazy. It got, they got so engrossed in that power role. And then they had to, they, you know, it became this, like, we're a gang on this side, we're a gang on this side, it's us against them. And it became so inhumane that they had to, you know, ethically end the experiment entirely. And um, (laughs) that's pretty telling. Yeah, I think people don't really understand what humans are capable of, or, or even what they themselves are capable of, given the right parameters. Exactly. Power will change people, especially mm-hmm. when that power is not regulated. Do you find in your work that much of the population uh, is generational? Mm, how do you mean, like, Meaning that it stays in the families that if if a parent is uh, incarcerated, that the the likelihood of their descendants would also be incarcerated. There's definitely a correlation for sure. I I wouldn't say it's uh, necessarily a cause, but it's certainly a correlation. Um, I I would say the majority of the individuals I've worked with have had parents or siblings that are incarcerated or were incarcerated. Some of them were even incarcerated with each other. Uh, that that has happened. But uh, there's also um, just a family history of, you know, uh, substance abuse or, or foster care or, you know, things like that that also played a role. Um, but there's definitely a correlation. I, it's not uncommon to see that there's criminality like that runs transgenerationally. Um, yeah. And economics. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That plays a huge role. Access to care, (laughs) classism, all of that falls into, uh, into how recidivism occurs. Access to bail money is a huge. Oh yeah. It's a very classist system right there. If you don't have money to bail out too bad, but Hey, if you got money, Bring it over. You can go free. You know, uh, it's very classist. Let's talk about the rape kits. There's a huge backlog yeah. on, on that, on the processing of rape kits. And you can go to endthebacklog.org to donate money to help with yeah. that. By the way, anyone listening, your grandfather helped create this thing. Where is the legacy of, of this, do you think? Do, how do we get the word out? How do we grow the program to make sure that people who have, have and it's not just women, men get raped too, mm-hmm. to have access to the end girls and boys and non, non-gender specific, everybody. Unfortunately, right. this touches everyone. Uh, no pun intended, obviously, but where is the legacy of this, do you think? 
in, in and just trying to get more to get to get it into more hospitals to make sure that more uh, facilities can provide these things to even get the police officers to understand how important yeah. it is. Um, so when my grandfather created the rape kit, it was debuted in the late 1970s, and then I think it became used um, throughout hospitals around 1980. Um, there wasn't a uh, national DNA database in place like CODIS um, that wasn't in place until the 90s. So when he first created this, a lot of them were conducted, you know, on survivors, but they were held in evidence lockers because if somebody if they didn't have a suspect to test it against, then they couldn't use the DNA. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't, they couldn't test the kit and upload it into the national database with the hopes of finding a match. So back when it first became active and used until, you know, uh, mid to late 90s, there was really, it made sense why a backlog started. Because there was, you know, like, if you don't know the suspect, if you don't know who to test it against, then you, what's, why open it at all? Why tamper with it at all? Um, so that I understood, but once we got the, uh, the national DNA database in place and states started requiring, um, DNA being uploaded into that system for anybody that was charged with a felony, um, and we started to get more of a, a robust collection of DNA, it didn't make sense why any untested kits stayed untested. So, that's how it started. Why it continues now is for a number of different reasons. Uh, firstly, like with hospitals. So when to, in order to conduct a, a rape kit or a forensic exam, a person who's doing the exam has to be certified. So you have to have like additional training. So that's money and time that somebody has to, to you know, do in order to get this certification so that they are capable of doing these kits. As a result, there's not a lot of sane, we call them sane, cert, sane, I can't remember, sexual assault nurse evidence. I, I can't remember the actual acronym for that. We'll have to look it up. It's eluding me right now. But you can be a doctor or a nurse um, to get this sane certification. But we're looking at like 40 hours of training and money and time away from work. And so as a result, a lot of hospitals don't have a sane certified individual working in their hospital. And if they do, they're not working on every single shift. So when survivors are going to a hospital to get a rape kit examination done and, and or tend to any injuries that may have resulted, they get turned away a lot of times because they don't have a certified individual on staff to do the kit. And then that leaves the person with a few choices. One, I either stay without showering, without changing, sitting in this as my body being the crime scene until I can find someone who will do it. Or I just say, screw it. I want relief and I want to shower and bathe and put this behind me. That's where we're left. And then those who find, who really, really bravely and courageously power through until they can give that DNA only to have that kit sit on a shelf is the absolutely most infuriating thing uh, that I can, I could ever imagine. I didn't realize how bad the backlog was until about 2015. Um, I was, CNN reached out to me and I did an interview. Uh, they told me about it and what was being like, you know, just how bad it was. And that's when I learned the gravity of it. I knew it existed, but not to the degree that it does. I had no idea. So after that, I made it a mission to start bringing awareness to this. I know my papa did not create this kit so that it can sit on shelves or not be used. And he certainly didn't create this kit so that we could continue not prioritizing crimes against women the way that they should be. Oh, and, and men and children sexual crimes in nature. So since then, I had written a book about him. It's called The Power of Truth, The Life of Louis Arvatula and the Legacy of the Rape Kit. And I donate proceeds from those sales to endthebacklog.org. 
because there is just no excuse anymore. There's absolutely no excuse for this backlog to to continue. It's infuriating. And so that's, and to answer the question about the legacy, I feel like as a direct legacy of him, I, I feel very empowered to keep that, keep my voice active in this, become an active voice in this and do my part to try and bring awareness to this and find legislation or whatever it is we've got to do to, to make this um, go away. This can't continue anymore. Yeah. It's this, the idea that a hospital charges $200 for a Q-tip and can't find the finances to, and that's not hyperbole. I've had surgery. I know how much Q-tip in a hospital costs. It's a lot. And the fact that they can't find the finances to ensure the safety and justice for people that have had these crimes committed against them is just mind boggling, except except for it's not because it so speaks to our society, our society (laughs) and system. And and also when you think rape, of course, the first thing one thinks of is women and girls. But of course, it's it's sexual abuse happens across the board to all types of people uh, and all genders and all that. But it does, I think, speak to where women fall in society on the on the range of priority. How they are helped in not only the within the realm of victim and and survivor, but also uh, in the medical field. And and how women are treated within hospitals and doctors' offices. Yeah, yeah. we're quite often dismissed. Yes, or our complaints are minimized. They're labeled or pathologized as anxiousness or something that it other than what it really is. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a across the board problem. They don't even get the uh, the kind of painkiller situation that that yeah. males get. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know, like IUDs or you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's 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 mind boggling. One of the things I've been trying to introduce is uh, legislation that mandates that every state, any hospital, has to have a SANE certified uh, employee working every shift. And that that be a requirement by state law so that no one is turned away. I I don't know how or why that isn't the case. Um, I know that it's not easy to be SANE certified. To to be certified to conduct these kits uh, is it's a it's a trauma in itself, right? To to have the fact that we need to do this, the fact that we have to learn to do this, the fact that this exists. It is it it's very grueling emotionally for anybody who is certified to do this because you know a survivor's body is the crime scene it's grueling for them it's grueling for the individual who has to take all the caution in the world to make sure that kid is is collected appropriately and compartmentalized and tamper free and not no cross contamination and preserved with its integrity and so there's very few same certified individuals as a result so I feel like if state laws would mandate that, then hospitals can incentivize the training. You know, we're paying for it if you go because we need it. And so more people would be able or willing uh, to get SANE certified. And that way, at every shift, whenever a survivor shows up in the worst day of their life, is not turned away. Came into that. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing that work. And if anyone listening wants to help with that, uh, do you have any kind of a thing people can reach out to you? Yeah, you, you can reach out to me through my social media. Uh, my TikTok is Dr. Ingalls. My Instagram is Dr. Tristan Ingalls. I have petitions um, in my links that you can sign. Um, some of that, I, I have several. <laughs> One of them are like, post fitness for duty evaluations for peace officers continuously throughout their careers. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I'm trying to help generate change for, but I'm only one person. <laughs> so, and yeah, and I'm actually trying to explore nonprofit ideas as well. I am. Uh, yeah. I'm yeah. Well, I'll put links as I always do on Hey Human Podcast links page too, so that people can find it easily. You. Have you been in the presence of a true psychopath before? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> you talk about I, that I a little that, bit. I say that and laugh, but that my, that was a humor as a defense mechanism. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely have. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know what really I can say because. You some of don't them, have to give names, but I am curious. Yeah, it was like, the feeling that oh, I just would yeah. love to hear. Like, could you give an example of what that experience was like without yeah. Giving names, obviously. Yeah. Um, the experience of being in the presence of a true psychopath, uh, when you encounter one, you feel it in your gut. It's like all of your nerve endings are just on fire of like, okay, this is, this feels predatory. This feels unsafe. Uh, your spidey senses are up. That's the sensation I get when I'm in the, in the presence of a, a true psychopath. And that's happened. Uh, I've had several occasions where that has happened. Um, yeah. It's Do you think psychopaths are made or born or both? Um, I think there's there's varying research on this, right? So we've got psychopathy. They've done a lot of brain scans on psychopaths that are, are like diagnostic psychopaths where there are structural abnormalities in the brain, which suggests that there are some nature or biological aspects to it. And then there's sociopath, which you've heard that term, which is more of the made version of things. So, yeah, I think there's both. I think you've got those that are born with some abnormalities, lacking that conscious, <laughs> you know, just um, born that way. And then there are those that um, I believe had been made through their environment. And those you'll see, they'll have some level of regret or remorse in certain areas, but it's quite minimal and it still always has to do with them. You know, it's very self, self egocentric. So, so yeah, I guess the short answer is both. <laughs> so it's interesting if uh, having a body reaction to a psychopath, I, somebody like a Ted Bundy who was able to mm. you know, work his way, getting people to do his bidding and yeah. sort of the wounded animal trope that he used. Oh, yeah. Uh, how is it that you think that they are able, these types of people are able to pull the wool over. Is it just by mirroring? Yeah. Yeah. It's by mirroring like the mask of sanity. I was actually in a documentary on Tubi about Ted Bundy called evil among us, Ted Bundy. Um, so you guys can check that out, but Ted Bundy, uh, he really stood out to me because of the time in which he was active that he was so um, underestimated because he was a white, affluent, educated male that the community, the people around him just didn't look at the red flags. They, did, they, they didn't even want to trust or believe that this person who's educated and so well, like charming and handsome could possibly be this monster. And it was like, he, I think he was really the 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 one person that shook people's ideas of what mon a true monster could or couldn't look like it's uh he masked it that well he he knew exactly how to hide <laughs> hide behind that yeah it's an extraordinary case i've you know i've read a lot about him and you, when you're reading it in retrospect you think i mean come on how yeah. do, you know but uh, to your point people can get away with a whole lot if they look a certain way or speak a certain way or yeah or hanging out in like more affluent areas like ski resorts and like you know um and back then people really didn't you know really didn't consider that just like even now there's a lot of systemic racism right white people are not especially in the criminal justice system are not are not e being viewed equally to BIPOC individuals. Well, back then when Ted Bundy was active, no one was going to look at him and say, ah, yep, I see it. No, they, they were going to look at people of color, black. Which is fascinating because in history, there have been so, so, so few people of, uh, people of color who have committed serial killing. It's, it's mostly white males. Yeah, white males. Yeah, it's like this exclusive club of white men, and yet there's still this. Yep, that's our society. Our yeah. society is very uh, racist and classist and patriarchal. And so, if you're 
there's no way, I mean, we need to be looking at, you know, minorities, we need to be looking at people who are lower in the socioeconomic status than us, because those are the problem, right? That's how we're we're brought up to, you know, many people have been brought up to believe. Mm. Those bad neighborhoods don't go to, but what's bad about it? It's, it's a poor neighborhood. (laughs) <laughs> like that what but they equate that with bad and so yeah it's just back then i think that's such a great case study for um just the sociological aspects uh that he really brought to light ted bundy mm-hmm. i'm from washington state lots and lots of serial killers a lot of woods i guess <laughs> a lot of yeah a lot of good uh hiding spots as we say Mm-hmm. And also truck routes, things truck like that. routes. Yep. Yep. Like the Long Island serial killer all along the truck route. Uh, and uh, who still hasn't been found. the Garden State, the Garden State killer. Yeah. I interviewed a guy that wrote a book about that. Uh, Christian yeah. Barth. Yeah. Still to this day. Although there are speculations that it might have been two serial killers that were already active that decided to come together to have a little oh. fun. Some yeah. interesting theories around that. It's a good book. I had to guess. I, I would have said, you know, truck driving would be an easy answer, but I also feel like any kind of highway patrol officer, he because no one's going to question him pulled over on the side of the road with a car just hanging out there while he buries the body. <laughs> like that was where my mind went, sadly, but um, it's a reality. I mean, yeah, I, I think... I'm never, again, never surprised when we find out somebody who's perpetrated crimes against children is a coach or a teacher or an, a clergy or, you know, it's, you're drawn to your, wherever your psychopathy. Your, yeah. Your, where it gives you access to your prey. And, yeah. and then uh, they take on roles that make it easy for, for them to groom their acts, their, their prey, you know? Yeah. It's, it's all opportunity. Would you say in your, well, let me preface this. Whenever I talk to my dad, who I adore, uh, he's, he's always so afraid. If I say I'm going on a road trip or I'm going to go to this place or do that, he's always like, well, be careful. Keep your head on us. You know, he's so worried. Yeah. Would you say that in, because of what you do for a living, have you grown more, so accustomed to the experience and knowing the things, you know, that it's made you kind of have a bubble, like I'll, I'll probably be fine statistically, or does it make you more hyper aware, more hyper aware, more hyper aware. I, it's interesting because, um, when you've, when you're around the population that I serve and you see the details of their crimes and the patterns of their crimes and like what what they're looking for when they're looking for a, to victimize right you learn those things and then you take those into account and and avoid them in your own life like i won't you won't catch me walking with headphones in or talking on the phone uh, I, I won't because anything that takes my senses away from my environment uh, puts me makes me a mark. Wearing your hair up makes it easier for them to pull your hair. Or if it's like in a ponytail, if it's down, you have to like cover it with a cap or something like things like that. Always checking the back seat. One of the inmates that um, I had on my caseload, who he was trying. He was older and he was trying to uh, make amends for his life and. Part of his way in doing that was telling me ways that he victimized and what I should not do when I'm out in the world. Check your back seat. Don't do, don't do that. Don't do this. And uh, it's really it's eye-opening to because you hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Like, this is this is what I looked for. I wasn't stalking one particular person. It was, it's a crime of opportunity. That one's the easiest mark. I'm going for it. So yeah, it made me much more hyper aware and to some people that might seem like a negative and it can be if if I'm too uh startled in my environment or too worried to leave the house but in reality I think it strengthened uh my my situational awareness and my sense of safety uh and you know challenged any false sense of safety I might have had so I think it's so funny that people tease women are obsessed with true crime and I often my response to that is 
Well, of course, because we're statistically more likely to be victimized. And not only that, we're learning what not to do actively by hearing other people's stories. I have changed so many habits based on hearing what other people have gone through. For example, at night when I would get in my car, I would sit and answer emails or texts before I would drive away. Don't do that anymore. I would never sit in my car for a period of time, especially after going to the bar or going to a restaurant or something like that. You have to, like you said, the whole being aware of your surroundings is such a, I'm a quite tall. So I think I'm already a little less exciting. I shouldn't say that and challenge anyone listening that way. Yeah, right, right. This is not an invitation. (laughs) Not an invitation, but I do think it, it certainly helps. To your point, there is not a need to be absolutely terrified every time you walk out the door. That's not healthy, but certainly having a sense of self and surrounding is so good. Look at the society we live in. We get into strangers' cars all the time now. I know that I, it took me a very long time to do an Uber or Lyft. The idea of that made me so uneasy when Facebook started doing the check-ins, like checking into here. And it gave you literally the latitude and longitude of where you are. I was like, why are you all doing this? Who needs to know where you are at this very moment? You know, um, those things blew my mind, but uh, yeah, just as you said, you're right. I mean, as a woman, our, our main natural predator is man. I don't go out into the world thinking another woman is going to prey upon me. Uh, it's man. So, and even like you said, your dad, even to this day is still like, be saved. We're raised to fear other men for a reason. <laughs> so, and I hate that that's the case. And I know, I know men will respond to that by saying not all men. And you're right. It isn't all men. However, it only takes one. And right. the truth of the matter is, is, you can, it's easy to be cavalier or flippant about the situation, but it it is a reality. If you ask nearly every one of my, and I'm just going to go with gender female because it's, you know, whom I've had the the pleasure of having this conversation, unfortunately, uh, that at what age did you start being touched, accosted, you know, leered at whatever it is by men and we're talking four, five, six-year-olds. Yeah. And my, I remember when the Me Too movement, and we're kind of, I'm veering off topic from the topic of you, but I just think it's so oh, that's okay. This is great people topic. to hear is that yeah. when the Me Too movement first started, uh, one of the things was, I, I remember seeing on Twitter, someone had said, write down everything you can remember of any kind of interaction that was whatever it was that made you uncomfortable or feel unsafe or was improper touching, you know, any of that. And I thought, Oh, I'm going to do that. And I wrote down three pages later. And later that afternoon, I was talking to my dad and I told him about that experiment. And he said, well, you probably don't have very much. And I said, he said, if anything, thinking that he's, you know, he takes it on himself. Like I I protected you your whole life. And I said, "Uh, three pages, dad. And I started going down. He was so astounded for everything from being at the water park at eight and having someone stick a toe where it didn't belong or, you know, in the wave pool or something that happened in college or, you know, whatever it is, is that the, the reality is it's all the time. And we have to be so careful, unfortunately, and aware. Yeah. And it it isn't all men, but it is all men in in a sense that like, where were the other, why didn't any other man seeing these things intervene? Right. If you see it intervene, Uh, I don't, there's a reason I don't go jogging outside anymore. I used to get trailed by men in cars. You know, it's like a terrifying experience. There's someone in a car, I'm on foot and they are, they are trailing me and catcalling me at any moment. They could jump out and kidnap me and all these other cars are passing by and not one person stops. Right. So it's like, you know, we really truly only feel safe with ourselves in those moments because no one intervenes. I had such a really, I think I've talked about this once before on the show, but I was doing a writer's group uh, with, I believe there were four women, one man, and we were all sitting around the table. We were writing, but at this very moment, we were chatting amongst each other and it was starting to get nightfall. We were sitting outside and there was a crunch of a leaf 
nearby. And all the women stopped, immediately stopped talking and turned to look at it. And the man just kept talking. He hadn't even heard it or realized it, but the, all the women immediately heard this sort of far off crackle in the, in the bushes. Oh, yeah. We're always on this mm-hmm. at some part of our being is on this Hyler. At least I, I hope that's the case. And again, it's not about telling people to be afraid. It's telling people to be empowered. Yeah. Exactly. Like I, I, my, I go to Pilates and we discussed, uh, I can walk to it and I choose to walk to it. I don't listen to music. I'm not on my phone. I'm aware, but often I'm walking behind another woman, uh, who's just happens to be walking about. Sometimes they have headphones in, sometimes they don't, but even I understand that I'm behind them. They don't know who I am. They don't know I'm a woman. They don't know anything. So I alert them. Hey, I'm just letting you know I'm behind you so I don't startle you. I don't know how many times I've had to do that in the past few weeks. And every woman will jolt and be like, oh my gosh. And then they'll thank me for announcing myself and letting them know this is our reality. Mm -hmm. This This is an everyday occurrence for us. Yeah. And uh, I, I do that as well, actually, because there are most people are on their headphones. Yeah. Generally have one on their phone or they're just yeah. not paying attention. Yeah. And also, we need to acknowledge the fact, and unfortunately, I read a lot of very disturbing things and as far as statistics and articles about all this kind of stuff just yeah. because of my work and, and people I interview. But uh, it's not just women can also be used as in human trafficking as a way to pull people away. So just again, to your point, if your spidey sense is tingling, pay attention. Generally first instincts are the right instincts. Exactly. Always trust your instinct. Even if you're wrong, uh, you're at least safe. You know, like that's how I see it. If I'm wrong, sorry, but at at least I'm safe. (laughs) Nothing happened to me. I trusted it. I took care of myself. That's right. Yeah. So and normal, I think normally if if somebody isn't out to be a really, you know, a predator, if you say to them, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to offend you, but they'd be like, oh my gosh, no, totally get it. Yeah, I get it. Exactly. They're not gonna get on the defense or personalize or or gaslight you. Yeah, but me. if they do, that's also a red flag. A red flag, <laughs> right. Again, just listen to your gut. Your gut exists for a reason and we've honed it all our lives for a reason. So absolutely. So what's coming for you? You're still working uh, to, to make these changes in our, in our system. Is that your, mostly your main work? Yeah. I mean, I, I still do some, I do government work. I'm, I'm looking into starting a nonprofit to help address a lot of, uh, a lot of these issues that we discussed and making these changes and helping survivors because uh, it's sad that we need to do that. And it's not being done. I am in another documentary. It came out on the Golden State Killer on Tubi. So that came out. I have a few more potential uh, television things in the works. Yeah, I'm just going to keep, you know, keep the legacy going, you know, honor, honor a great man um, and, and everybody that he's touched. Yeah. I'm what a legacy. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was great. And the, the fact that, that, you know, he never really talked about the rape kit very often. And when he did, it was only when I was old enough to really get it. He didn't like the fact that it had to be done. Of course you not. Know? Like, why, why are we here? Yeah, of course not. Um, so, and he, he lectured, he was a part of women's advocacy, advocacy groups, um, and yeah, so I just want to continue to be a voice. I think my, like you said, my, my history, my, my family connections can, amp- I, my voice can be amplified a lot more than others. And so I want to use that for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's extraordinarily proud of you. I hope so. <laughs> I think he is too. I'm ho- I'm hoping to adapt his book into something, a documentary or something to draw more awareness to this. Uh, um, but we'll see. Hopefully anyone listening is any interest. Let, let me know. <laughs> I have interest. <laughs> yeah, I know, right. Let's bring it to the big screen. <laughs> Let's do it. Or a series. I think it would or make an extraordinary yeah. series. Yeah. Same. I agree too. Yeah. We'll see. Fingers yeah. crossed. 
Well, thank you for doing all the work and for your insight as well. I, I am fascinated by the mind and what makes people do what they do. And I'm also happy that people like you exist that see the brokenness of our uh, facilities that incarcerate humans on such a disturbing, at such a disturbing rate. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very disturbing and and to see it firsthand, it's, it's that much like jar. It's that much more jarring, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience as scary and uh, life-threatening as it might've been with the green wall. Um, I'm grateful because it taught me so much and I can speak about these things openly and talk about the changes that we need to see in the world. Yeah, absolutely. One more time for everyone, how to find you. So on TikTok, it's Dr. Angles, and that's D-R-E-N-G-E-L-S. On Instagram, it's Dr. Tristan Angles, and I'm, you can spell it, but T-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-N-G-E-L-S. Um, those are my two social medias that I use. Your TikTok is is quite it seems to be one that you do a lot. Of. Yeah, that's the one that has the most following and and reaches the most people. Um, but I am on Twitter. I'm just learning it still. <laughs> well, again, I'll put all those links on Hey Human Podcast links page too, just to make life easier as well as, well as your book, a uh, link to your oh, book. Please. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, follow, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.